G'day friends, thank you for streaming, for downloading, for subscribing to this show, to Coming Up Next, the podcast. By now you know the drill, I'm going to keep bringing you awesome content every week for free and all you have to do for moi in return is head on over to iTunes or whatever platform it is that you use to download or stream the show, hit subscribe, leave a review and make a five-star rating. You do that and I'm going to continue, like I said, to bring you interviews with some of the world's top creatives. Like this week, I'm sitting down with Gabe Klinger, who is in Melbourne for the Melbourne International Film Festival with his film Porto. It's a really, really great film um, and there's plenty of other amazing films that you can check out. There's still another six, five days left of the... Melbourne International Film Festival uh, it ends on August the 20th, so head to myth.com.au if you are in Melbourne, Australia or any other part of Australia and feel like travelling and you can check out the amazing catalogue uh, and while you do that and while you're subscribing to this show so it magically appears on your device every week, I will hand you over to my interview with Gabe as we sit down chat about his career, being in Melbourne, and uh, whether or not you should be pirating. So this is your first time at the Melbourne Film Festival? Yes. And you're here with your film, Porto, which uh, played... Had his first screening last night. Yeah, wow. Acme. That's yeah. amazing. How did that yeah. go? That was great. I had actually been to that space before, um, several years ago, when I, I came to Melbourne on a personal visit. And I saw uh, Michelangelo Antonioni's Liglis, the clips there. And that was like kind of a just a great screening I remember I had never seen that film before and those were the one of the movies you know that kind of expands your idea of what movies can do and so I was happy to be re- returning to that space where I had that sort of formative experience you know it kind of felt, felt appropriate in a way not not like measuring myself or you know comparing myself to Antonioni <laughs> by any means but you know it was just it was just nice to be there yeah I mean Melbourne is Melbourne's a great cultural sort of uh, city and um I mean, you come from Chicago, which yeah. is, you know, sort of, I guess one of the cultural sort of epicenters of the world. We really? Were... I, I don't know if we can we consider it that, but no, but thank, no, it's I mean, nice to. <laughs> I suppose in terms of, from my point of view, <laughs> sure. well, what it's given to the world culturally sure. and and where it sits uh, in. No, that's true. Yeah, that's fair. Mm. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe not uh, in terms of. It being, I guess, like a hub like New York or uh, or London or Berlin, a place like that. But in terms of, I think, the arts community, it's... Well, the, you know, artists can still thrive in Chicago because uh, it's an affordable city. It's accessible. So uh, places like New York are, um, yeah, uh, are shedding their artists because it's not, you know, there's no um, there's no more option for them to live there in, a, in, a, in an adult way. I mean, you know, I still have several friends in New York who live in you know, shared living spaces and basements and everything. And it just, it doesn't feel very adult. It feels like a, uh, you know, a protraction of college, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, a, so Chicago, you know, um, yeah, it's just, it, I guess you could say it's like the Berlin of the U.S., you know, because rent rent is relatively cheap and you can go out and eat and it's, you know, you, you won't break the bank. 
Did you grow up in Chicago? I did. I mostly grew up in Chicago. There was a time I lived in Spain, uh, in Barcelona, before the Euro. So it was very cheap then as well, and I had very easy access to culture. So I could go see movies very cheaply, and that's where I started to really uh, get into movies. Yeah. Do you remember what your first experience of um, performing or storytelling or something maybe in, in childhood yeah, well, I was in a, I was in junior high school. I was in a, um, a theater production in my school, and that was interesting just to kind of observe how that, how that works. And I was an actor in the play, and um, it's still something I'd like to return to at some point in my life. Um, and I think maybe yes, yeah. I think the the performative is it just something I've always been inter- interested in. I was a class clown. Yeah, I was, uh, <laughs> you know, I. Uh, yeah, I definitely wanted to be kind of like front and center at, you know, the dinner table uh, at home with my family. I definitely, you know, dominated the table a lot. And, you know, so, yeah, I think there's some kind of, <laughs> you know, yeah. like affinity early on for, um, for storytelling, for performance, for all of that. I don't know. Does that sort of answer where you were coming yeah, from? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, okay. I, I yeah. think that those kind of formative experiences definitely can shape i guess it depends on whether it's encouraged by your family or kind of drowned out or what your where your interests lie but i think they're they're fairly influential experiences yeah yeah my dad was a big cinephile he saw he grew up in london in the 60s late 60s or he he went there to study theater and he got a membership to the electric cinema and he used to go to the nft and places like this and see you know amazing films and he'd you know tell me about those experiences and then my grandmother uh, was a big fan of Bergman, is a big fan of Bergman and Tarkovsky and people like that. And the first two of the first uh, books that she ever gave me were um, Andrei Tarkovsky's Sculpting in Time and uh, Ingmar Bergman's Images. So those were like two very kind of influential books for me, like early on, you know. Mm. Yeah. And she gave me like VHS tapes of seventh seal and fanny and alexander and solaris and andre rublev you know and so it was just kind of to get that sort of education at home was very important yeah and what was uh what was the path like i guess through kind of high school and um whether or not you you would go on to study film before making films what was that kind of path like well it was very lonely because i was living in spain and i didn't know the language yet how old were you when you moved to spain i was 12 so uh you know i spoke portuguese because we're originally from brazil but um you know in barcelona everybody speaks catalan which is a challenge and um and i didn't really speak i was taking spanish classes but i didn't speak it with any kind of fluency yet so i just ended up going to the movies a lot it was very hard to make friends and uh, movies became my friends, you know, so I, um, so that was just a way to escape that, you know, r- that reality as a, as a teenager, just a lonely teenager, <laughs> was just going, <laughs> going to the movies and, um, and that carried, you know, on for quite a while. And I was very kind of intensely devoted to watching films throughout, you know, my twenties. And, uh, I think now I've, slowed down a little bit and I, you know, I want to write, I want to make films. I also want to, I'm interested in other things now, but for sure for probably 15 years of my life, starting when I was about 12, you know, the priority, uh, was movies, you know, like, um, above every, everything else, you know, (laughs) (laughs) looking back at that, it was a bit like, 
a bit extreme, you know? Yeah, no, I can definitely, and I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate to uh, to that kind of thrust. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. I think, you know, you... Yeah, everybody has their kind of their their passion and I'm lucky enough that I you know, I got got to do that professionally early on too. You know, I got my first programming job when I was 19. I was working for a, a university cinema tech and um and then I got another job at a film archive in upstate New York um working with, you know, collections and exhibition and um, and then uh, went into teaching film. So um, and that was in my yeah my, my mid twenties. I was already yeah, wow. te- teaching uh, uh, film history. Yeah, having bypassed college myself. I was going to say, did you? <laughs> yeah, you just learned from the masters. Yeah, just a lot of reading. I mean, I think if you have if you happen to live in a city with good repertory programming, with cinematech spaces, with art houses. And you have a library card. That's kind of all you all you need, you know. And um, yeah, that was I, I had in Barcelona. There was a very good cinema library where I'd spend hours there, you know, pre-internet. So well, not pre-internet, but let's say it was, um, early internet. So now everything appears to be archived online, or you have access to things. Everybody just kind of goes on Wikipedia, and mm. just you know, it's all. It's a little superficial still, I think. Um, but let's say even, you know, and then the the internet would have been a great source, but I didn't really have those resources online yet. So I went to the library every day to read about Brisson or Ozu or, you know, any whoever I was interested in. And, um, and then uh, I'd buy VHS tapes. I'd buy them, you know. From from even if there were movies that uh, I couldn't get locally, I'd order them from from the UK, like uh, from labels like Artificial Eye and uh, um, Arrow and uh, Eureka and you know these kind of uh, yeah cinephile British labels that were you know putting out Jarmusch films or whatever you know yeah 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 well are there any uh, sort of are there any pivotal films that you would say to your students you have to see these films if you haven't seen these go and see them now oh yeah i mean it just it's so many uh in the history of cinema class that i taught we start off with the lumieres and edison and then we kind of work our way up to neorealism and um and the nouvelle vague i mean so it starts you know i mean you know you try to show them something like citizen kane and you know i mean it's hard not to fall in love with that kind of film and uh or The Man with the Movie Camera by Ziga Veritov. Um, there are movies that have a language that, you know, still speaks to people. Young young people uh, can still really get engaged watching, you know, a Citizen Kane or a Man with the Movie Camera. Um, so, yeah, I remember um, one experience in class showing... Um, a Godard film, you know, and that w- was like a late Godard, maybe Notre Music, our music, and, you know, there were a lot of complaints and walkouts and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, uh, so you have to kind of, I mean, that that's a bit advanced maybe, you know, like that's sort of like um, we're in a, in a literature class where you should be, you know, teaching, um, you know, Shakespeare and you jump right to... Um, you know, Beckett and Proust and uh, people like that, and jo- <laughs> Joyce, you know, you don't give them anything in between. So I think it's just about, yeah, 
um, not being afraid of the canon and of those, you know, kind of very familiar, you know, films to us. Um, and, uh, yeah, there, I mean, I have my list, you know, obviously I have the films that, that changed me, the, you know, the Brisson films, Balthazar, A Man Escaped, and um, all of Ozu's films, Bud Bedeker's westerns, John Ford's westerns, um, you know, the list kind of goes on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you were, you were also working as a film critic at this, at that time? Yeah. And that was just, I was telling the, uh, you know, there's this critics campus here at, in Melbourne at the film festival, which I think is just so important to foster that. Um, so they're young, uh, you know, Australian film critics, um, you know, training with professionals who are out there who are writing. And I told them that for me, um, it was just a clever way to access films. So when I was writing about film, it was just about getting getting invited to screenings so I wouldn't have to pay for them, you know, <laughs> getting, getting invited to festivals. Because um, I just wanted to see more, more and more films, right? And at a certain point, your allowance runs out. So yeah. So you got to uh, you got to find a way to subsidize it, <laughs> yeah. like making a podcast. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how did you make the transition then from working at college and um, and working as a film critic to make your first film, um, Double Play, which was an award winning documentary? Yeah, I always wanted to make films. It was just about you know stepping up and having the courage to do so. So um, did I, you ever? Sorry, did you ever learn yeah. it practically? Like no, practical? not really. I learned on on set. Making yeah. that movie was really. Um, I, I feel like making Double Play was my undergrad degree, yeah. and making Porto was my master's. You right. Know? Um, I was really you know in both cases kind of learning as I was going along, and that means you know at at least being smart enough to hire talented knowledgeable people you know um <laughs> who you can learn from you know yeah. who you can really defer to when when things get tough and i must say that having two kind of master directors around on your first movie you know that was pretty helpful you know mm. uh, occasionally richard linklater would step in and you know just say <laughs> i even have like footage of him saying like well you know you probably don't want to shoot over here and you know he's he's like it's kind of making suggestions about where we should point the camera and you know james was doing the same thing and so um you know that was intimidating but also um you know very very helpful very reassuring to have two people like that on set and then with um porto the most important person for me on set was anton he had you know been in about 30 movies all kinds of movies, big budget movies like Star Trek, and then you know tiny movies like Jim Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive, and uh, so he knew sort of every production model. You know, he knew a set inside and out, and so he was always somebody you could rely on to say, "Hey, Anton, we're kind of stuck here. What should we do?" You know, even in terms of like you know basic things like scheduling. You know, um, and. Uh, Lucy is very knowledgeable too. She's been on a, a TV show for a while, and uh, she hasn't been in that you know so many movies. So, um, but yeah, everybody was very um, just you know had had you know resources that I lacked. Um, Wyatt, our DP, Larry, my co-writer, Rodrigo, our producer. You know, so it was just knowing um, you know 
uh, when when to kind of not not be afraid to to ask, you know, and just you know recognize that you in in, cer- in a certain way are the least knowledgeable person here, <laughs> having enough of a you know humility to to, to acknowledge that and to kind of open up about it, being vulnerable and accepting that you know that these people are your friends, trusting them that they're not gonna judge you for that, they're not gonna think less of you and. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a very careful relationship dynamic, you know, that you, you're setting up there and there are people who are very protective of you and, you know, so, Mm. yeah. What was the day-to-day reality, first of all, I guess, on double play in terms of, um, crafting and, and it was a very quick shoot. It was four days, so yeah. it, was, it was in and out, you know, and, and there were no reshoots, you know. <laughs> so it's like that. that's what we got, you know, and I had to sculpt something from it, you know, and I didn't know if it was going to be a short or a feature. I hoped it was going to be at least 53 minutes, which is the standard length of, uh, you know, TV, TV documentaries, and we had sold this one to French TV in advance of making it, so we knew that it was at least going to live on French TV. Um, and so I knew contractually, I, you know, I had to deliver something that was at least 53 minutes. Well, it ended up being 70 minutes and therefore it qualified as a feature. It could be submitted to the Venice film festival. And in Venice, we were, you know, very, very lucky and surprised to win this award, you know, the best documentary on cinema award. And from then, uh, forward, the movie just, you know, it ended up playing theatrically. It opened in New York and, uh, some other cities in the U.S. It played maybe a hundred different festivals and events, um, so it became a real movie. You know, it was supposed to maybe exist, you know, solely on French TV. You know, even Rick at one point came up to me, Rick Linklater, and he said, "You kind of duped us, man, because we thought we were just going to be like some obscure thing on <laughs> two two in the morning on French TV, and now we're being shown in cinemas all over the world." And so he was a little shy about that. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, you never know what's going to happen. And um, with Double Play, it was just, you know, very lucky that I had a, had a really good, resourceful uh, director of photography. We had two cam- our uh, One of our producers insisted that we shoot with two cameras. Initially, I just wanted one camera, you know, but having two, that really kind of saved my ass in the editing room, you know. So you just because you just have more coverage you're shooting things from different angles and you know you're covering up your you're able to cover up your mistakes so um yeah it was just it was it was incredibly um breezy as an experience you know from conception to our premiere in venice was six months which is sort of unheard of for a a feature film yeah it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Does it exist uh, online anywhere? Is there anywhere? Yeah, you can yeah. See it? It's. I think um, somebody told me that it's like on Google Play or I think Amazon. You know, you can order it from these streaming services. Um, iTunes has it, um, and I think um, you can pirate it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I would encourage you to if you can't find it any other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone, someone once uh, said to me. Um, how would you feel because they were anti or they are anti-pirating which mm-hmm. on the whole I am but they said to me how would you feel if someone pirated a film that you made and I said I'd feel pretty happy that I'd made a film worth pirating yeah yeah exactly <laughs> I mean I'm happy that people in countries where the film wasn't distributed or was never shown are able to see it um, I think the technology companies or the distribution mechanisms that exist 
are failing certain people in certain markets or certain demographics. And if they're able to find movies through other means because the studios or whoever is not, um, you know, being more proactive about reaching those markets, then they should absolutely go ahead and do that, you know. Mm. Um, And I think in a way it's good for movies that there is that sort of level of interest. There's nothing, nothing's ever going to replicate the theatrical experience um you know a service like netflix what it's actually doing trying to do is create these you know algorithms so that it gives people suggestions so you you tune in and it's you know amazon is the same you like this so you might also like this or you like you like a comedy so you might like this comedy or you this director or this actor or whatever and that's really how people are consuming movies nowadays whereas the people who who pirate movies um, a lot of them are cinephiles or people who are looking for a specific film or a specific title that they've kind of gone out of the way to see. It's not about browsing. It's actually about wanting that specific thing. So if somebody in, you know, um, I don't know, in, uh, in, in Korea wants to see my film because they're interested in James Benning or Richard Linklater and they have no other means to, you know, or no other way to see it, you know, and they specifically seek that out. I don't know. It's like there are certain texts or certain books that wouldn't exist nowadays if they hadn't been, you know, pirated, right? Yeah. There's, yeah. Um, if people, you know, even even films where you know distribution companies would pirate negatives early on in cinema history. You know, starting with people like George Méliès, whose movies were very profitable. There were distribution companies that would pirate the negative. You know. Yeah. And um, and a lot of the, f- the 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 prints that survive of those films are those kind of pirate prints, right? Yeah, yeah. So we wouldn't even have those films to begin with if we didn't have those pirate copies. So anyway, that's a very long-winded uh, <laughs> uh, defense of pirating. But, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you can, if if uh, if if there is access to iTunes or uh, yeah, or Amazon of course, or whatever, yeah. you know. I I would always pay for it, but I guess it's like you say to if 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 there's no other access, you know. I think Filmstruck. It's a com- new company in the states. Um, I don't know if it's around the world yet. Mubi is is around the world, and they're very good. They have a very interesting, you know, online library of films. Filmstruck has all the Criterion Collection films. It's a very good U.S. DVD label. Um, kind of like the Rolls Royce of art house, you know. DVD and Blu-ray um, cinema, and um, so they're they're really good. I mean, like you know, I would I would recommend those. I wouldn't recommend Netflix. You know, if I were told if if somebody really is interested in movies, and you know, they told me you know I could pay eight ninety nine or however much you pay for Netflix, or pay you know fifteen dollars to have both movie and film struck or something. You know, I'd tell them to do the latter. They're just gonna get more interesting movies you know so yeah anyway it was a, um recently at uh at khan um the netflix film which oh, i can't remember oh the name Oak, okja and uh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and merrill's project right the Noah bomback film yeah yeah and um and the audience openly booed oh really booed when, the when netflix, netflix logo. logo came up yeah that's so can yeah <laughs> <laughs> they canned it yeah yeah <laughs> um but you know people like Christopher Nolan coming out in defense yeah. of the cinema going experience and being an experiential kind of 
society as opposed to being passive and just sitting yeah. at home and waiting for the next episode to start, so sure. to speak. Um, and I think things like, to, a great segue to bring it full circle, things like MIF and film festivals yeah. really oh, offer... They're so vital. ...an amazing opportunity f- to get out of the house, to go to films, to immerse yourself in a few weeks of cinema. Yeah, you still you still have to get out of the house, right? That's yeah. what I tell my students. Like, you just you have to go. You have to go stretch your legs, take yeah. a walk. So you know, you gotta go. You gotta you know be in an environment with other people. That's just that's healthy. Mm. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So, what was the kind of the life of Porto? Yeah. Um, to to touch on that, how did you conceive of the the idea, and how did you then realize it? Well, whereas uh, Double Play was supposed to live on TV, I always wanted uh, Porto to live in the cinema. So um, we made it in a way that, you know, we shot it in a way that um, it was always supposed to be seen on on the big screen, first and foremost, right? Um, So it's a, you know, predominantly 35 millimeter production. You know, that's a large uh, gauge film format that, you know, a lot of people don't shoot in anymore. Kodak is still making 35 millimeter stock. We're still able to make 35 millimeter negatives and distribute in 35 millimeter in certain cinemas. In Australia, you have several movie theaters that still do old school 35 millimeter uh, projection as opposed to digital. And so um, I'm very interested in that, um, almost in the f- performance aspect of it. You know, like uh, a film in 35 millimeter nowadays, it becomes something very special. It really, be- it's an extra kind of reason to get out of the house to see it that way, um, to see it in the original format of the movie, right? Not a kind of facsimile of the film. Of course, digital is very good. It's a very good fac- facsimile, but it's still not transmitting what film is transmitting. You know, it's film really does have a special uh, textural quality to it. It has a very, it has a lot of dimension that digital doesn't have. You know, we're talking about emulsion on a strip of film with light shining through it. There's just, you know, the digital just doesn't compare to that. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of flat image when you have digital. Um, the, the blacks are not as deep. Um, the grain structure is not as pronounced. Um, it's not as warm. Um, actors love film because it has that little bit of softness to it, whereas digital, everything is so pristine that you can see every little nook and cranny. Yeah. <laughs> and actors, I've, I've seen them just kind of horrified um, by the way that they're lit and captured digitally, whereas our actors saw themselves um, on film and they were you know, just in- incredibly pleased. It was you know, the best they... They thought they'd ever looked, and um, and I'm really just pleased with kind of the the ideas that we were able to convey through film. So we're we're kind of channeling a lot of movies from the '60s, and we're also playing with this uh, idea of you know just the storytelling of um, you know these different uh, time periods, these different you know we've got the past and the present in the film, and film really allows you to kind of you know 16 millimeter and super eight film kind of allow you to paint you know uh with kind of wider brush strokes it, it, it gives you a more impressionistic image and 35 millimeter gives you more immersive image you can really like jump into a story in 35 whereas 16 and super eight it has a dreaminess to it, it has a subjectivity to it where you're a little bit outside of the experience of the film um or the story and so I wanted to be able to play with all that. I wanted to have all of those tools to be able to tell this specific story. Yeah. Yeah. And so what were 
What were the challenges, I guess? Did yeah. So you had Jim Jarmusch as executive producer. Was he on from the beginning or did he come oh, yeah. on? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, he, he, you know, that's really somebody you, you want very early on, you know, to help open certain doors. And, and he did, you know, and he introduced us to uh, financiers and, you know, technicians and just all, all kinds of people that, you know, would be helpful to us. Um, how, how did you find yourself kind of immersed in this community of these great directors between this and Double Play? Oh, yeah. Well, just that I think for my life as a critic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had, uh, you know, very close proximity to to a lot of, you know, directors continue have, you know, um, writing about them, um, engaging them, I think, thoughtfully about their work. And so... I just think if if you respond passionately to some something that you know the person who created that thing responds in kind generally that's you know when students ask me how do you have access to people how do you network I don't really I think networking is sort of a dirty word you know um, I think what you do is you write letters you know it's more beautiful you know you just kind of tell people what you think about their work in a very honest and candid and precise you know and articulate way and people will respond, you know, and they'll take you seriously. And um, and so I had access to a lot of incredible people, you know, through film festivals, um, through, you know, one common connection lead to another and another. And so it wasn't that hard to kind of knock on Jim Jarmusch's door and say, would you kind of take a look at this? It's also a matter of luck because... Um, he was in between projects. He was waiting. He'd ba- he was basically a year away from shooting Patterson when we approached him. He was waiting for Adam Driver's schedule to free up. So he was just kind of sitting around. The movie was financed and ready to go. And they were just waiting for Adam Driver. So I guess it's thanks to Adam Driver that I got uh, Jim Jarmusch <laughs> to sign up on uh, Porto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so having having him on board, I presume, made getting things like funding and then cast like Anton Yelchin and yeah the amazing people that you got to work with I suppose it made that a more straightforward process well when Jim, when Jim put his name down he sort of he was his commitment was unwavering so um anytime anybody had a doubt about the project they still saw that Jim Jim's name was there that Jim was you know uh, gonna be there he was to the to the end of this no matter what and I think that gave people you know confidence to stay on as well um, so yeah I think uh, yeah it's a nice little trick I don't know if I'll use it on my next movie <laughs> maybe I can stand on my own ground yeah now but uh, but yeah it was it was nice to have that stamp there it gave gave us all a little bit more confidence yeah yeah absolutely yeah. I mean I think as you kind of touched on earlier so much of the filmmaking process is from a directing point of view is assembling a great team totally um, i think it's it's half the battle yeah um was the story is that something that was particularly close to your heart how did that sort of manifest well i had i had one idea and then we built on top of that um when i brought larry in and then when i brought anton and lucy in, that you know they also added added a certain dimensionality to that um so there were many you know I, I think you have a story that's sort of a skeleton. It's an idea. I knew for my first feature, I wanted to tell a story of two people um, and largely in one setting. And so that, you know, it's something a little more contained, a little bit easier to approach. Um, I didn't want for my first feature to bite off more than I could chew. And uh, of course, that that's kind of, 
you know, misguided because it ends up being difficult anyway. It could be, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, I'm looking at this, this telephone right now. If you're going to make a movie about a telephone, you're still going to be committed to making it in the same way that you would making a Roman epic or something, you know, like yeah. it's, so you're still putting in the same amount of work. It doesn't matter if it's two people or if it's 30 people. Maybe if it's 30 people, um, that's a little bit more problematic for the casting agent. But, you know, I mean, but as a director, it's sort of the same. And um, you're sort of you're, you're always going to be juggling, you know, multiple things. And um, but anyway, that's that's the, the kind of story that I committed to. And I wanted to play with the structure in the film. I wanted to, you know, I had this very specific idea about time unfolding in the movie and then I brought Larry in, and he, Larry Gross, our my co-writer, and he, um, you know, he had certain ideas, and then I brought in Anton and Lucy, and then they had certain ideas, and the script just kept changing, you know, and I mean, it kept changing until the end, you know, in the editing room, I brought in my editor, Geraldine Mangenot, and she had ideas about the film, my producers had ideas about the film, so... Uh, we kept, you know, intentionally kind of kept that openness from the beginning and, you know, um, invited that sort of interaction, you know, to be challenged all the time. I think it's very important. And I think you can see it in the final film that it's, it, it is a movie that, um, that was, it was really kind of sculpted in a way. We arrived at a place where everyone who collaborated on the film was very confident about what they were doing, you know, and that's what, that's, that's all you can ask for is that everybody's, you know, committed in the same way, believes in in the same way, so that when you get to that final version of the script, everybody's down, you know, nobody's like, well, I like this, but I don't like the, you know, it's like, no, it's, you know, everybody kind of has to be uniformly excited about it. You got to have that fluidity, I guess, and that openness. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, it's it's a great kind of, I guess, tribute to European cinema, but with, I guess, a kind of uh, American flavor or a very contemporary sort of flavor. Yeah. Um, and it's really, you know, sh- cutting between the different film gauges, like you say, really kind of underlines and underpins all of that. Um, what... What, I suppose, do you hope the life of the film will be and how would you regard it as having been a success? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's played. You know, we've been distributed in about 30 countries. It's still coming out in several places. It's played about 50 film festivals. Um, that's really all you can hope, you know, hope for is the, the movie will be um, bought for distribution. Um, uh, it will be programmed in festivals, good festivals, good quality, you know, high-profile, prestigious festivals that it'll be reviewed well. For the most part, it has, you know. So, um, yeah, it's 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 all been... Uh, we, we feel very blessed by that. But, you know, at the same time, um, it is my first film. I don't think it's a perfect film. Um, and I'm always a little bit shy when I show it, you know, because <laughs> I'm a little bit scared of its flaws because I've seen them. I know them better than anybody, you know. And so... You don't want that much scrutiny, um, you know, on your first film. You kind of maybe limit the exposure level a little bit, you know, just so on the next one, when people are really shining a spotlight on you, oh, what's he going to do next, you know, then you um, you come in a little bit more confidently. So that's, I think, my next film, I think, is going to be really, 
I hope will be really great. But you never know. It might, you know, might be, it might not as, be as well received as this one. You, you, have, you just have no idea. You just kind of have to just make it, you know, just be focused on it and kind of mute out or insulate yourself from all the noise. And, the, you know, you'll drive yourself crazy if you think about, you know, festivals and reviewers and all this stuff. You just kind of have to, at one point, kind of step back. Yeah. And what do you do in the interim to keep going and to stay alive? <laughs> That's I'm not very good at it. <laughs> um, like, you know, normally in my life I teach, but I've been so busy with the movie that I haven't been able to commit to a teaching schedule right now. So um, I hope to go back to it in the winter after the distribution tour of Porto is, is over. But it, it's very hard to make a living as a filmmaker. You don't, I mean, you don't really make any money. Um, and so, um, you don't even really get a salary because I, you know, my own salary in the film, I put it towards the making of the film. I didn't, you know, every, every extra dollar that I had went into the movie. So, you know, credit card debt and all this stuff, you know, it's very real, you know, yeah. but it's worth it. It's like a lot of people have credit card debt cause they took a stupid vacation that they couldn't afford, <laughs> you know, or they bought a car that they couldn't afford, um, I made a couple of movies, you know, and I incurred some credit card debt along the way and some other debts here and there. And, um, hey, I'm, I'm no regrets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but that's, those are the sacrifices you have to make. And I keep telling my parents, we're like, well, you, maybe you should get a real job now. <laughs> you know, like, well, this is my job, but it's, you know, it'll, it'll pay off. You know, you just have to kind of keep investing in it. You have to take that risk. Yeah, it's yeah. the Kevin Smith, P.T. Anderson kind of modality of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, just keep going, you know. You, you, Right now, I'm just grateful for everybody who's kind of puts up with me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but hopefully, it'll get better. Hopefully, it'll be like the opposite in a few years, where I'm doing okay and I can support the, you know, incoming generation. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm sure if 22-year-old uh, Gabe looked forward and saw that he was sitting in Melbourne, in Australia, with this amazing view of the uh, the CBD, yeah, you probably think that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. That. Yeah, I would have never in my wildest dreams imagined that, you know, being being in Venice or being in, you know, in, in South by Southwest or Rotterdam, you know, these were kind of, especially a festival like Rotterdam was a festival that I always looked up to. Uh, and Michelle Carey, the director of this festival here in Melbourne, she, you know, she and I would always meet there and watch films. And now we're, you know, I'm showing my own films there. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's just, it's such a thrill, you know, it's... It's never going to get old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Just got uh, goosebumps thinking about <laughs> it. Very cool. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gabe. For, yeah, uh, thanks. For, for doing the podcast. I end all the conversations with the same question, which is what makes you silly? Oh, what makes me silly? I mean, probably the fact that I still believe in, like, mo you know, movies as this transformative thing and not just like this, you know, media filler or something. Like that I, you know, I'm still like very committed to this ancient idea of, um, of what, mov you know, movies can do. And um, that's, probably, that's probably pretty silly to some people, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? But yeah, I believe movies can, can improve people's lives. Movies can change people's lives. And, um, and I guess maybe that, that can sound a, a little bit foolish to some, you know, a little <laughs> naive. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank Kevin. you.